Hello, and welcome everyone to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast produced by the California State Railroad Museum. We have a great episode for you today where we speak with Dr. Dominique Bridget Heald, a professor at the Memorial University of Newfoundland. Uh, we're going to talk about her work on railroad films, and these films were created in the early days of film by railroad companies to help encourage people to travel to faraway destinations by railroad. They help create the modern conception of tourism and help lead to the conservation movements throughout the American West and in Canada. We also dive into what these films looked like, and maybe most importantly, what these films ignored about these beautiful landscapes. So without further ado, let's get into the show. article begins with travelogues in the 1890s and covers non-narrative films. Can you describe for our audience uh, what these were like and how they're different from the blockbuster movies we'd see in theaters today, uh, or maybe even how it's different from what we'd see on, say, the Travel Channel? Great, thanks. It's a, a really wonderful uh, question because I think people don't realize how uh, different these early movies are, although in similar ways, um, they do parallel your kind of YouTube and, and TikTok in the sense that they are very, very short. So we're talking about the early days of cinema, uh, roughly the 1890s through the 1900s, and um, motion pictures lasted only a couple of minutes. At the most, they would be 10 minutes long, which was uh, the length of a single reel. Of course, they are in black and white and they're silent, but that doesn't mean that they were without sound. So very often when they would be shown, there would be um, orations, so kind of a lecture or a talk. Uh, very frequently, they would have um, musical accompaniment or sound effects like train whistles or bells to kind of... Um, almost create like an immersive experience for the audiences to really feel like they were kind of experiencing the railroad. Um, early films, of course, they covered very diverse topics. So uh, dealing with uh, kind of the recent historical past or kind of topical news items, uh, footage of celebrities. And one thing to kind of keep in mind with the kind of first motion pictures is that the emphasis is on showing rather than telling. Um, so they favored showing something novel or exciting to audiences that will kind of pique their interests. And that's why you see so many scenics or they're also known as travelogues um, and particularly those that centered on railroads or trains. So that's kind of why they're so popular in this period. Uh, very quickly, I don't know how much in the weeds you want me to get into this, but um, uh, uh, very quickly, the, they kind of transition to what were called story films or today what we refer to as fictional productions. Um, and then these would be shown in movie theaters. So whereas the earliest motion pictures tended to be shown um, anywhere from like church halls to public auditoriums to exhibition grounds. You then have the emergence of dedicated uh, motion picture theaters. Um, and the other kind of takeaway from this is that um, 
even though they were meant to be entertaining, they're also um, instructive. So kind of um, the intention was to educate or in the parlance of the time, really to uplift audiences. Uh, so travelogues uh, and railroad films were very much seen as educational. And I, th I think that sort of brings us into our next question of um, who produced these films and, and why? Um, yeah, so at the turn of the 20th century, you already have um, railroad companies such as the Canadian Pacific Railway, the Northern Pacific, Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe and the Southern Pacific very quickly uh, recognizing the power of film um, that um, kind of as a way to showcase both the railroad and kind of the surrounding tourism infrastructure and, and the landscapes. Um, railroads um, and kind of all of the stuff that comes uh, with that industry. So the tourist kind of accommodations or hotels and restaurants and recreational facilities of course, were very expensive in tourism, as well as particularly in Canada's case, uh, settlements, so kind of encouraging immigration, was seen as a way to kind of recoup some of those debts. <clears throat> um, and then also you have this kind of transition uh, from the Northeast as in being kind of the center of tourism with the opening of the transcontinental railroads, it starts to shift uh, west in places like the Rockies. And of course, you have like the national parks also at the same time being built both in Canada and the United States. So um, motion picture technology emerges at this kind of key juncture. And so then you have the railroads that are commissioning these new film companies to make these films. Um, Biograph, uh, which is a short form for the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, as well as the Edison Manufacturing Company. Those were the two uh, biggest uh, film studios that did uh, kind of these railroad films. And there's also kind of a bit of competition between uh, those two film companies and that um, pushed them to do even more kind of uh, ambitious uh, railroad films and of course the railways were you know very eager eagerly cooperating with the film companies because they recognized that it was kind of a mutually beneficial relationship yeah and i think that's so interesting that you have this relationship between these two like very modern and new technologies and they sort of feed off each other some of the best uh more successful of these films surround the railroad and that sort of helps kick off film and then film also helps the railroad kind of kick off into this uh tourism uh market yeah ab absolutely they are they are definitely kind of hand in hand so so how do these films affect the way people viewed the west uh, what did some of these films promote yeah, this is really interesting, kind of in an abstract way. Um, they offered spectators a new way of seeing and experiencing North America's landscape. So kind of similar to what you were just referencing, these kind of new modern technologies, um, you know, did promote kind of new ways of experiencing um, Western landscapes. And they also, it's really important to mention is that they promoted a settler colonial narrative. Uh, this, the story behind the scenes that isn't shown on the screen, but, you know, uh, us as historians were often as interested as 
as what's missing and what's excluded as what you can see. So what you do, what is missing is indigenous peoples. Um, so again, it's like reinforcing a settler colonial narrative in which, um, you know, indigenous communities have been removed from their ancestral homelands and then often followed by, you know, kind of the appropriation um, and commodification. So uh, very often, you know, you have these connections of vanishing Indians, uh, quote unquote, uh, becoming tourist attractions, um, often promoted by the railroads. So for example, the Canadian Pacific Railway for I think beginning in 1885 through the 1970s would host a Banff Indian Days Festival, again, promoting this kind of very commodified touristic image of indigenous peoples in the West, even though the railroads had, <laughs> had displaced um, and dispossessed indigenous peoples. Um, so yeah, so you have this kind of really interesting um, kind of, um, you know, like I said, a new way of seeing the West where you have the presentation of these kind of seemingly uninhabited kind of pristine wildernesses, um, but they're integrated in this very complex uh, web of industrialization and consumerism that is brought about by the railroads. And of course, a lot of that imagery uh, stems from notions of the sublime, which is connected to like American romanticisms. Um, and, you know, the, the railroads, the physical railroads, and also the train films, um, you know, offer access to these awe-inspiring places in Western North America. So they're very, very much imbued with symbolic meaning, um, particularly at a time when um, kind of urban industrial society is really driven by this push to, you know, bureaucratize and this emphasis on efficiency and order. So you do kind of have this, you know, um, um, this, this con contrast and that kind of speaks to like the, the appeal of, you know, the open wide spaces of, of the Western landscape as accessed by the railroad and, and cinema technology. No, I, I think that that sounds um, exactly right. It's like, um, and this is something as someone who wasn't a railroad guy before, um, you know, coming to the railroad museum, it was like one of the most interesting things to learn about was that like the railroad, which we think of as this like super highly industrial uh, machine, um, especially if we're talking about like steam trains, like responsible for a lot of environmental destruction. Um, and yeah. yet, like they are so instrumental in bringing people to these pristine landscapes that, um, you know, help create the national parks movements, all these things. And it's just weird that those are so connected because they feel yeah. so different when we think about them. Absolutely. And then you'll see this again, kind of repeating in the 1920s with, with <clears throat> automobiles mm -hmm. as well as kind of, again, you know, the building of, of roads again to kind of um, have have the, the these kind of new vistas uh, of the West from instead of the comfort of a passenger railway car, but kind of the freedom of the open so-called open road in your in your automobile. Um, okay, so we sort of touched on it a little bit, um, but did these films depict the West as it really was, 
or did it obscure some elements of the West? Yeah, um, again, this kind of goes back to the idea of settler colonialism. Um, you know, so <clears throat> kind of in privileging um, landscapes and technology, uh, the motion pictures erased indigenous peoples and cultures. And this is really the same whether the train film was set north or south of the border, they, they kind of, you know, are still very much invested in that similar discourse, um, kind of covering up the fact that these Western landscapes were, um, you know, uh, places of uh, colonial displacement and instead showing them as vacation lands for non-Indigenous uh, tourists. So it's, it's really kind of um, like, a, I think the, uh, uh, tourism historian Hal Rothman said making the railroads made um, and the same kind of goes with railroad films is made uh, uh, tourists out of travelers. So again, um, you know, kind of reinforcing this and this kind of links to this idea of mass consumerism, creating this kind of new idea of, of the tourist, the, you know, visiting, uh, visiting the West kind of making a pilgrimage to these, to these, um, you know, places like Yosemite or Yellowstone or Banff or Jasper. Uh, so speaking a little bit more about that, can you, can you describe the difference between a traveler and a tourist? Yeah, that's kind of a, <laughs> somewhat of a, of a debate in, in uh, tourism studies. Um, you know, generally the, you know, the tourist is, is kind of linked to, to this kind of emerging ideas of mass consumerism and kind of, you know, what's sometimes called the, you know, the democratization of travel. Um, so where you have, uh, you know, and again, this is, you know, mostly uh, people who are middle to upper class tend to be white, uh, white families, um, but there, you know, there still are more opportunities to, uh, to be tourists um, because of uh, more uh, discretionary income, you have increased leisure time. Uh, so that's, you know, again, it's kind of all, all linked to the, the commercialization of leisure that's, that's happening at the turn of the, of the 20th century. Yeah, no, and it makes sense. I mean, that's something that we definitely have in our, our modern world. I think, like, I, I'm, I'm in Sacramento, um, and everybody I know has been to the Sierra Nevadas at some point to go see Lake Tahoe, um, and yeah. everybody at some point has gone to San Francisco because they're both two hours away, so they're pretty close, and that's just where you go on vacation. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, even thinking about it, like, like, like I, I haven't been to Yosemite personally, even though it's not that far, it's like three and a half mm -hmm. hours from me. Um, but I can just buy pictures, you know, working at state parks and we, we see pictures of Yosemite all the time. So I feel like I kind of know it, you know what I mean? Sure, yeah. And that's just a, a testament to um, the power of, I think, visual culture um and uh both the tourism and film industries most more broadly is that they do kind of uh in a way frame our expectations and kind of teach us how to be tourists so um 
you know, in a way that's kind of nice that you kind of have, you know, kind of maybe a feeling of, of security that you know what to expect, but at the same time, it kind of cuts off, you know, a little bit of one's freedom of, you know, kind of maybe discovering new and different things that aren't kind of in that, you know, if you go to Yosemite, you must see X, Y, Z and, you know, and we're all guilty of it. I mean, of course, I love doing, you know, visiting sites that I've seen in a motion picture. Yeah. Uh, although I, well, would you agree with this? So um, all those like biggest rubber band, rubber band balls uh, or on, on the side of the road in like the middle of the Midwest or whatever, does that count as like one of these tourist sites? Yes, absolutely. I, I'm a big fan of those road roadside uh, attractions and I will pull over if there is like the world's biggest, you know, deck chair or <laughs> Good, okay. I will go out of my way. <laughs> um, okay. So, so for the most part, your article looks at uh, two different companies, the Canadian Pacific Railway Company and the Northern Pacific Railroad Company. Um, were there any differences in how these companies presented the West to potential passengers um, or were they just sort of the um, same thing, different name? Um, there are similarities and differences. I mean, in, in both um, cases, nationalism, of course, uh, plays a huge role, particularly uh, in the United States. Um, you know, there was kind of a... Uh, um, the impetus to, as one, um, there's a historian called Marguerite Schaffer who wrote a whole book on this, and it's it's not about the um, Northern Pacific, it's about the GNR, but it's to see America first. So to kind of, even though that, you know, they're kind of selling, you know, similar ideas of the West as these kind of like open spaces and alpine peaks and glaciers, you know, of course, there are differences, um, you know, north and south of the 49th parallel, uh, but still, you know, they're kind of similar, selling similar experiences. So in the US, the big push is to keep American tourists within the American borders. In Canada, the big goal is to kind of lure American tourists across the border uh, because the sheer numbers, they're the American tourist market is much larger, obviously, than, than Canada when you're talking about uh, demographics. And then, of course, you know, for kind of currency re reasons, you know, having American tourists spend uh, American dollars kind of helps out with um, potential trade imbalances. Um, the other big difference that I kind of... Um, noticed in, in my research on this is how innovative the Canadian Pacific Railway was in using early motion pictures for marketing pur purposes and, and in kind of um, trying to show Canada as they often use the frame, the last best West. So kind of <laughs> advertising Canada's advantages, not only in terms of scenery, but uh, in terms of its resources. So agriculture, forestry. Um, and, and so one of the kind of the, you know, innovative ways that the Canadian Pacific Railway did this was by making motion pictures that were kind of part travelogues, but they were part 
melodramas. And so they're essentially advertisements for the railroad and for the Canadian West more broadly, because of course there's this big connection between kind of the nation state and the, and the railroad. Um, but um, you know, that you basically would have these plots of these films where they would have an American tourist or a settler who's of course traveling along the Canadian Pacific railway. Um, so that's kind of the travelogue piece, but in terms of the narrative, you know, they find their fortune or they find love or happiness uh, in, in the Canadian West. Um, and so this is kind of all interestingly tied to um, uh, the notion of what was called suggestion psychology, which was really popular at the time in advertising. So you had motion pictures that were promoting the railway without you know, seeming to be an advertisement because they had that kind of fictional element to it. So it was kind of appealing to spectators' uh, emotions. Um, and then through those emotions, making positive connections with the railway. And then, you know, the, the goal is for them to be like, hey, I should plan my next vacation in Canada because look how great it looks. No, <laughs> it's like you will find love and money. <laughs> And start a farm in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Great. <laughs> That's super interesting. Cause I mean, I'm thinking like, like in, in obviously like New Mexico didn't create Breaking Bad to make me want to go to New Mexico, but it, it did make me want to go to New Mexico. Cause you just see all these. Oh, absolutely. Shots, yeah. You know, so like it is, it makes sense on why that would, um, that would work. Yeah. Um, so what got you interested in the subject? Um, so my interest began while I was working on my first book, which uh, is also film related. Uh, it's called Borderland Films, the American Cinema, Mexico and Canada during the Pre Progressive Era. Uh, so that's basically the 18. Uh, well, the Progressive Era is the 1880s through World War One. Uh, but since I'm looking at film, I start in the early 1900s and go to uh, 1919. Um, and in the in the book, when I was researching, of course, it, it's kind of looking at motion pictures that are set on or about the U.S., Mexico and U.S. Canadian borders. And of course, the West figures very prominently in that. Um, and one thing I noticed is that they, you know, even whether it was set in the northern or the southwestern borderlands, they shared similar characters, motifs and themes. And one of uh, the kind of recurring elements is the importance of the transcontinental railroads to kind of these shared understandings of uh, the West and North America. So, um, so that's kind of where, where this, uh, you know, where my uh, interest uh, came about in film, uh, film and railroads. Uh, and what do you hope people take away from your work? Um, the main thing is how important, you know, again, speaking as a historian, um, how important films are as primary sources. Uh, they can be a window into so many aspects of culture and societies of the past, um, particularly in terms of understanding national identities, uh, race, class, gender, sexuality. Uh, and this is something that I emphasize in my teaching as well. So kind of encouraging students to move beyond media as entertainment, but rather as a way to understand change over time. 
Awesome. And if somebody wanted to uh, maybe get that book you mentioned, um, get any more information on this topic, uh, where, where should they go? Uh, so Borderland Films was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2015, and I believe it's available wherever books are sold on Amazon or through the publisher. And I do, if I, if I can have a, another book plug, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I do have um, a history of film and tourism in Canada that is being published by McGill Queen's University Press in the fall. Uh, and that one is called Northern Getaway film, tourism, and the Canadian vacation. Uh, And in that, I uh, discuss the role of railroads, um, the Canadian Pacific Railroad particularly, but also the Canadian National Railways uh, and the ways that they used film to promote tourism uh, to American tourists uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Cool. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'm I'm trying to get more into the uh, Canadian railroad history stuff just because yeah. I, know, I find it so interesting it's like looking into like a, a slightly distorted mirror you know what I mean it is yeah and very like you know like you mentioned and that's kind of the thing with you know my interest in in borderlands is that when you because I started off as a borderland scholar it kind of forces you to kind of move away from that American history versus Canadian history silos and then see kind of the points of um convergence as, as well as divergence, but, uh, you know, kind of see those really interesting connections. Thank you all for listening to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast produced by the California State Railroad Museum. For more information about the books discussed in today's episode, please see the podcast description. Join us again for our next episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk in two weeks. We'll see you then.